Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So uh, we are going to spend the next four weeks uh, in this little series uh, that we have called Wild Wonder, reflections uh, from the passage of chapter six in John. And uh, my desire is that as we build off the back of looking at what it means for us to be a church of the way, as we dwell in this chapter, uh, that you will come to the conclusion uh, for yourself and for your family and for your friends uh, around you, uh, you will come to the conclusion uh, that following the way of Jesus is living a life full of wild wonder, a beautifully risky, curious adventure walked with a tender and creative God. And so what I want to encourage you to do, and we'll try and do our best from up here each Sunday, but for this to really kind of start to make a difference, would love to give you some homework. Is that okay? Um, I'm not going to check. You don't ha obviously don't have to do this. We're not going to start next week uh, with a checklist, um, uh, just in case you were wondering. Um, I would love to encourage you to read John chapter 6. Uh, I would really, if you like, um, were one of those people in school um, uh, that liked, liked the additional homework or like going the extra uh, mile, uh, I was not one of those, and yes, you are a bit lame. But um, uh, if you want to kind of really take it further, um, is to read John chapter 6 every day. Just to like let it, let it sink in, let some of the words and the, the journey of this passage sink in every day for a week. I think it will take you three or four minutes uh, and then just to sit uh, in that. So there's your homework. I'd love for you to engage with this passage and maybe if you kind of have access to uh, the Bible app or other books, read around it, see what it's saying and uh, see what God's saying to, it, uh, to you through it. So for today... We are looking at the famous passage of the feeding of the 5,000. And so this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection 
that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that must mean that it is important. One of the many reasons I think this miracle matters is the number of people that were there. As Liz just read out, it says that there were 5,000 men, but with the addition of women and children in that number, most scholars would believe that this crowd would have been at least three times or more at the size of that 5,000. So why is this significant? I want to start by saying that at this This miracle, this encounter with Jesus is significant because it gives external evidence to the validity of Jesus's ministry. And so why that matters is that when you're trying to work out whether something is true, when you're trying to work out whether something is real or not, you need both internal and external evidence to back up its validity. For example, when you're going to buy something, you don't just want to listen to the advert because obviously the seller is going to tell you it's the best thing in the world. It's like that's like if they're not doing that, they're mad. Uh, What you want is a a friend or a family member to have already experienced uh, the thing that you're about to buy to give you a recommendation. So you've got both internal recommendation from the seller, but you've got external recommendations from the other buyers of that product. So when they were looking for testimony and evidence to back up the claims of the Christian faith, to help get this movement of the way off the ground, you need moments like this where 15,000 plus people could give an eyewitness testimony to the miraculous power of God. I was there, I felt it, I experienced, I even ate of the bread that came from that little boy. You see, the evidence of Jesus and his ministry, including these miracles, uh, the resurrection and uh, his life in the Gospels, uh, are very well attested for by historians, both in and outside of the church, and, uh, which gives us the internal and external validity. And so uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves when we read accounts and passages like this was, is not did Jesus exist or did he really even do these things? No historian worth their salt would ever disagree uh, with that. The more important question is why did he do these things? And maybe even going beyond that, what does it tell us about who he is? Why did he do these things? And who does it say we, uh, he really is? And at this, the most public miracle of Jesus's ministry, I think he is announcing to the world, well, this is who I am. And so for today, as we kick off in John 6, uh, I want to draw out three things that this passage tells us about who Jesus is and why he does what he does. Uh, and so firstly, and I told Tosin, um, our visuals team are absolutely great. Can we have a round of applause? Um, I told Tosin that I was going to do the slides, and I forgot to bring the clicker, so now you're going to do the slides. Sound good? Um, Brill. Um, so firstly, Jesus is the power of God. Jesus is the power of God. This is the first thing that we see uh, that Jesus claims. And so um, for us to understand this, and we need to zoom out into the bigger picture of what Jesus is really claiming here. Uh, We need a little bit of context that would have been much more familiar to uh, that original audience, which is the Exodus accounts 
of the Old Testament, where um, we read uh, these accounts where God fed the Israelites, uh, the chosen nation, his church uh, back in the day. He fed the children of, um, of Israel in the wilderness each morning with what is described as manna from heaven. You see, for years and years, as this little community walked around uh, in the place where things should not grow, in the place where everything else dies, where everything is dead, God showed his unique power that he is able to create and sustain life itself. Only God has the ability to bring about life out of nothing. You see, God, the creator, the parter of the seas, the bringer of manna, the tearing down of Jericho's with a few uh, trumpets and saxophones and so on. This like out of nothing theme of power is then echoed by Paul. So we have this kind of context and understanding that only God has the ability to bring something out of nothing. And then Paul in Ephesians 1 says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritances, holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, and here's his description, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. What's interesting uh, about when Paul talks about power in the New Testament is that he pretty much always talks about the resurrection. Uh, That when we talk about Jesus being the power of God, we cannot do so without addressing the resurrection. And uh, Paul uses this incredible phrase here, the incomparably great power, which in the Greek, are you ready for it, um, is hyperballon megathos tes dynamos. Hyperballon, megathos, test, dynamos. Um, Jason, you can give me marks afterwards. Um, you can almost hear the translation of this particular phrase that Paul uses to describe God's power, because most of our English words are derived from it. And we've got the translation directly underneath. The hyperbolic magnitude of this explosive dynamite power. So if Jesus is the power of God, if Jesus is the out of nothing, out of nothing created power of God, what does he have power over? Why is that significant for us? Well, what Paul says he has power over is death. You see, death is the number one power that is working against you and me. Like the ultimate statistic one in one of us in this room will die. Later, when you're like chatting about church, you're like, oh, I felt so uplifted when John told me I'm going to die. Like, what a statistic, guys. The only one you can't ignore. Um, You know, the message of Jesus is he says to that statistic, and he says to the inevitability of the end of our life, he says this, I have put death to death. This is the power that I reveal to you uh, today in the feeding of the 5,000. I am the power of God, as Jesus says, the death-breaking, life-giving power of God. And so uh, when we start to think about the activity of Jesus' ministry, we we realize this is everywhere. 
Yes, this is in the feeding of the 5,000, but it's in the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead and the setting people free and the forgiving of sins. And we realize that the effective measure of God's power is this, how life-giving is it? Have you experienced a life-giving power, a death-defeating, life-giving power? Because if not, it is available to you today. How life-giving is the power that you are receiving? I think this is a total reversal of the power that we see in the world today. The generally corrupt, disordered, and disordered power that leads to brokenness and division and fractious relationships, whether in larger organizations or even in one-to-one relationships. Generally, power is broken in the world. And the way that we we approach it, and even as I say that word, you're a bit like, oh, I don't like the topic of power. Well, because it's broken, because we don't deal with it well. We don't deal with it in the way that Jesus deals with it. Because when, um, when we operate out of God's power, it is only ever life-giving. It is only ever creating something out of nothing, creating life out of death. It only leads to healing and wholeness and renewal. That kind of power is powerful in a staff meeting or with a friend at the school gates or when you're anxious and you can't sleep. And so as uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, what he is doing is he is announcing to the world, this is who I am. I am the life-giving power of God himself. The life-giving, nourishing power that can feed and satisfy you, that I am the all-sufficient power of God that can meet your every need and longing. Here, have some bread. So firstly, Jesus is the power of God. Secondly, uh, Jesus has power in abundance. So if we go back to uh, the desert uh, and in the wilderness uh, where the manna of God was falling uh, from heaven, and for those 40 years when they were fed with, uh, basically, uh, God was just like, chuck some cornflakes out on the desert, and they all went out and... Um, that's uh, what most theologians think, anyway. Um, uh, when they were uh, feeding, what, one of the instructions was only take what you need. For if you take what you, more than you need, it will go off. Just take your, basically your daily ration or your daily bread. But Jesus goes out of his way to show that the manner that he provides from heaven... Uh, the manner that he provides gives us so much more than just our daily ration. I, um, I went to a secondary school that was along the bank of the River Thames, and um, uh, most winters it would inevitably flood because we were relatively near the source, and so it was a normal thing for one or two times a year, um, especially when we uh, had a rugby match in February, which I was not a big fan of because I was actually quite small at school, and so I was like quite cold and getting beaten up in the name of sport. Um, uh, And so I was quite happy when the fields flooded because it means the match was canceled. Um, And one of the things that we did instead uh, was we would continue to play the match, but we created like a water rugby version. So it was about like, it was about knee height and we'd run around and we'd kind of like frolic about. Um, uh, Because we were by the Thames as well, we had a little boat shed, like this kind of little boat shed in the corner. Um, And we found, one time we found this like rusty old canoe. um, And so 
then it became like water rugby meets gladiators with lots of tipping, uh, and it was a great time. Uh, and what I realized is uh, I started to look forward to the time uh, when the river would flood, when the banks of the river would be uh, burst. We read this in verse 12. When they all had enough to eat, there were 12 basketfuls left over. So once 15,000 people had been fed off five loaves and two fish, basically after they had stuffed themselves, there was enough left over. You see, what Jesus is trying to communicate here is I'm so much more than just your little daily ration. I am going to burst the banks of what you think is possible. You see, life in the way of Jesus, it bursts the bank of our expectation. It bursts the banks of our fear and it bursts the bank of our imagination so that we can live with a wild wonder. Jesus invites you, and I want you to hear this invitation today, uh, in, the, in the kind of the abundance of his power, he invites you and he says, come and play in the overflow of my provision for you. Bring your canoes, come and get involved. There is so much for you to enjoy. You think about the actual life of Jesus for a moment. The very first miracle that he does was create the best red wine that anyone had ever tasted. Like what, why, what an unnecessary thing to do. That, that now what he does is that he shows that he can create basketfuls and basketfuls and basketfuls of bread after they have been stuffed. Jesus is showing, showing the followers, I am the Lord of the feast, not the famine. I am Lord of the feast. I am Lord of the abundance. I'm plenty. I'm Lord of the harvest. Like, let me ask you this. What kind of God would create 2,000 species of beetle? Genuinely, there are 2,000. Why not 50? 50 would have been plenty, surely. Like 100, fair enough. 2,000 different species of beetle. Only someone who loves life itself would do that. Only a God who is an artist, who revels in beauty and creation, who delights in vitality would do something like that. So when you are feeling anxious, when you are worried or struggling to sleep, when you're trying your best to parent your kids and you're like running on absolute fumes because there is no margin in your life, when you're trying to plan for a future that is so unclear, there is an all-sufficient, abundant, life-giving power for you in the way of Jesus. This is available to you. you. There is plenty on offer for you. He invites you to come and feast with him. Like, what do you think Christian faith is? Is it like behaving a certain way? Or like following a certain set of rules or kind of trying your best and kind of feeling a bit bad about when you get it wrong, but like, oh, maybe I'll get into heaven. It's not, it's a feast. It's an invitation to come and enjoy, come and play in the overflow. Jesus has power in abundance. And thirdly, this, you can be a host for Jesus's power. 
See, there's this uh, really interesting line in uh, John uh, that he includes in verse 6. It says this, he, Jesus, already had in mind what he was going to do. What a confusing little line. Why, why did he kind of almost test them? Why didn't he just solve their problems? He already knew what he was going to do. He already knew that he was going to pray over the bread and the fish and the people would be fed. Why doesn't he solve their problem? Or because of this, Jesus is a teacher. Our, um, our five-year-old uh, recently learned how to button up his shirt. I mean, huge KPIs for this year. Um, uh, he buttoned up his uh, shirt for the first time just before he started school in September, which was actually quite helpful. Um, uh, he learned how to button up his shirt because we taught him. We showed him a few times and then we let him do it and we did it with him for a few times and now he's like doing it by himself. If I always buttoned up his shirt, I would have a 25-year-old at home being like, Dad, I'm late for work. Can you come and do my shirt, please? That would be weird. That would be a very... And if you do have 25... Like, no, let's not go there. Um, you know, he learned because I taught him. I want him to learn what he's capable of. The kind of remit that he has as a human includes being able to button up your shirt eventually. You see, Jesus has already said to his disciples in this moment, by faith, you can move mountains. Like, that's, that's a bit crazy. Like, actually think about that. Just sort of, come on let's move this mountain like that's a weird thing uh, to tell them but what he's trying to say is it is possible through me to move with a power that is so far beyond your natural ability you just wouldn't even imagine it it is possible in me for you to say to this mountain move from here to there and it will happen you have access to that kind of power and so instead of just solving their problems he teaches them you have access to that kind of power my disciples so he says well what do you think we should do Jesus the great teacher asks loads of questions and their answer is well we don't know how can we possibly afford to feed all these people where are we going to go it's too far to go into the villages and then what he doesn't say is well Andrew Philip little boy Honestly, I've already told you the mountain thing. Just get on with it. Check out where the miracle happens. In all the other accounts, he makes it really clear. It says this, that Jesus gave thanks, he broke the bread, and then he handed it to his disciples, and the disciples fed 15,000 people. Here is where the miracle was happening. Here is where the power of God was at work, in the hands of the disciples. They got to participate in his power. You see, all the time, I think all the time, generally, and no one in this room, you're all exempt, but everyone else, um, uh, we sort of try and sort of show people how powerful we are, powerful we are by like mentioning our accolades or... Oh, yeah, I did really well in this thing of like, oh, um, oh actually, he's a personal friend of mine. Uh, no biggie. Um, or like, look at this amazing life that I'm uh, curating online for you to see. We're trying to like sort of say, like, I am powerful. I am worth something. Like, I do have value. We do it all the time in subtle ways. But Jesus never does that. 
Jesus never does the kind of, hey guys, check out how powerful I am. He's not trying to show off his power. He's trying to get us to partner with him, to delight in his life-giving power, to lean into and to live out of the power that he invites us to be hosts of. He teaches and shows his followers that by allowing them to host a feast, that we get to participate in the things of the kingdom. That as hosts, we can hear God's voice for ourselves. We can be guided by his wisdom and his kindness spoken over us. That you can pray in the powerful name of Jesus and you can see breakthrough in situations where it felt like a mountain that wouldn't move. You can pray for healing and people will be healed. You can pray for clarity and the voice of God will speak. You can overcome fear and insecurity by discovering the life you were truly created for as you host his presence. My gosh, when like I stop to think about the kind of power that we have been invited to host, I, I get excited. That the God of the universe, it's crazy, the God of the universe who placed the stars in the sky, that spoke the world into motion, would want to take your little hands, my little hands, and say, let's build a kingdom together. Let's go and do some of the things that I've done and more. That is wild. It's wild to think that God would treat you and me like that. And oh, what a wonder it is. Oh, what a wonder it is when we get to live in it. So how do we host the power of God well? That's my um, real desire for these next four weeks. It's my desire for the next 40 years, to be honest. How do we actually host the presence of God well? How do, we, how do we be the kind of people that the Spirit flows through easily without interruption, without us getting in the way that we would see his kingdom come in our lives, experience it for ourselves, but ultimately in the life of the world around us? Well, I think this passage gives us two steps uh, for host, becoming a good host uh, of his power. And I'm going to finish with this. Step one, you cannot be a host of his power until you know your own lack of power. You cannot host God well until you realize your need for him. It says this, where, where will we get enough bread? Verse five, verse seven, it would take half a year's wages to possibly buy all of this stuff. You see, Jesus needed his disciples to see that what they had wasn't enough. What they were bringing wasn't enough enough you see like no matter how good your life looks on paper no matter how attractive your life looks online all of us have this question within us what am I really living for what is it that I'm really living for? I, I think most people find that question so hard to answer or such a daunting proposition uh, to come up with an answer for is that we generally avoid answering it with busyness. We generally kind of like busy ourselves with things that we think are worthwhile 
uh, and we kind of avoid uh, the question altogether or we get lost in some form of distraction. But the invitation of Jesus is to actually answer that question. What are you really living for? Because you see, if you stop long enough to sit with that question, you'll realize that the things that are most important in your life, you lack any real power or control over. Your relationships with your friends and your family, you can't control them. The health, your health, their health, you can't control and you don't have power over that. Your need for forgiveness, you're getting right with the one who created you. I am not perfect, you are not perfect. We are powerless to achieve freedom by ourselves. We need something higher, something greater, something beyond to pull us into it, to fill us with his perfect peace. And so in this moment, as I speak, if you're feeling bad, if you're feeling like, please don't be, You see, coming to a place of realizing your own powerlessness is where the power of Jesus can really start to kick into gear. You see, Jesus wants us to see that without him, we lack any real power in our lives because he is like a surgeon. Like good uh, good surgeons don't come in and kind of just make an incision, create a little hole and be like, cheers boys, I'm off. You're like, what do you see? Amazing. Do you see how well I went in there? Oh, unbelievable. Who's up for some five aside? I'm going to bridge the gap. Oh, like a good surgeon, like Jesus. He is a good uh, surgeon. So, with such care, precision, and tenderness, he accesses your inner world. He goes into your heart, mind, and soul, and he brings forgiveness where there is disconnection with God. He brings healing where we are operating out of pain. He brings wholeness to our desires and he lovingly ushers us into the life-giving power of God, his powerful freedom. Until we get to that place where we understand our own lack of power, we'll never fully host the presence of God's power within us. And so secondly, step two, You have got to put everything in God's hands. This is hard, but life-giving truth. You've got to put everything in God's hands. You see the boy offered his loaves and fish. Verse 11, it says this, Then Jesus took the loaves and the fish. What's interesting about this is that the boy lost control of his lunch. And because he lost it, he ended up eating far more than he could have ever possibly imagined. See, because he put what he had in Jesus' hands, he was given a feast. He was given a feast to enjoy. So let me ask you, what does it mean for you to put your loaves in his hands? How do we learn to lay down our lives as followers of Jesus for the sake of finding it in him? Like to me, that sounds scary and beautiful all at the same time. It sounds hard, but it sounds amazing at the same time. So how do we do that? Well, before we get on to making Jesus the Lord of your life, which is ultimately what we're aiming for, 
before we talk about kind of submission and obedience to his will, before we talk about uh, putting discipleship groups in place and having some good practices and things to live by, there's one thing that precedes all of the other. There is one thing that unlocks the whole of life in the way of Jesus for you, and it is this. You have got to believe and know that God is for you. Romans 8, 31. If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? If God is for you, what else could possibly be against you? I think that so many stumble at this point because it's just simply an incredibly hard truth to live out of. It's so hard to get your head around. And particularly for us who's been following Jesus for a little while, we can become so consumed with the activities of faith, of being a follower of Jesus. And we can become so worried by our own lack of power and kind of think, gosh, how are we going to change that we can lose sight of our first love? We can lose sight of the thing that actually saved us in the first place, the whole reason that we are on this journey, that God is for you. There is a God who cares deeply about you, cares more than you care about the things in your life. We've um, started... Uh, doing this blessing with our kids every evening. Um, uh, and if, if it's okay, I'm just going to do it with you. Is that right? Um, uh, because ultimately, we want our boys to be rooted in this. And um, I actually, um, I might get a bit emotional talking about, <laughs> talking about this because I just flip and love my boys. Um, but I really care about you and I really want you to know this as well. It's this. Uh, we say to them once they're um, all tucked in and um, uh, we've had a wrestle, uh, we say that we're not going to do that bit. I say this, can you hear my voice? Yes, daddy. Can you see my eyes that can see your eyes? Yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes, although it's sometimes some, like something about dinosaurs. Do you know there is nothing that you can do that would make you love me, that, that, that would make me love you anymore? Do you know that I love you no matter how good you are? Do you know that I love you no matter how bad you are? Yes, daddy. Do you know who else loves you like that? God loves you like that. Would you rest in that love tonight? You see, when you put your life into Jesus' hands, when you trust that kind of power, when you know and believe that there is a God who loves you, who is so for you, that there is a Father who is singing over you, who is singing over you, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased, when you realize that no matter what you do, 
No matter how far you feel from God today, no matter the anger that you can sometimes feel, no matter the deception that you're caught in or the lives that you have started to believe about yourself, no matter the pattern of brokenness and sin that you are currently living out of and that you cannot break, above all, God's death-defeating, life-giving power is for you. You have to start there before anything else. You see, when you place your life into the hands of a God who is for you, whose resurrected power now lives in you, that is a life of risk and beauty. That is a life of courage and adventure. It is a life of wild, of wild wonder. And I think it is the only life worth living. It is the only life that you should live. But... To do that, to really do that, to place for you today or at some point, to place your life in his hands, to pray this prayer, wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord, you have my heart as we've been singing. Would you take my life and use it for your glory? To pray that Jesus would be in your conversations at work with your difficult boss. To sow generously with the things that you have, your time and your money, into the things that he is doing. To let Jesus be the primary reason that you make decisions in all areas of your life. Or to do that. Oof. To do that. That sounds like the kind of decision that you'd make when you're drunk. Like, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to give everything away. I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to lay my life down so that Jesus can be glorified in me. I would say you'd need to be hammered. I thought, what? That's a crazy thing to do, right? To declare that Jesus is Lord, to give over control, to open up your hands and say, Lord, have your way in me. You would need to be drunk, which is why Paul in Ephesians 5 says this. Do not get drunk on wine which leads nowhere good. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is what you need. For every question, every longing, every disordered desire that you have, this is what you need. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with my life-giving power. Be filled with my voice. Be drunk on my love for you. Be so consumed by it that it's the only thing that you know and see. And so this is my prayer for each of you, whether you've been in church for 45 minutes or 45 years or more, would we be filled with a wild wonder? Would we be filled with a wild wonder? A wonder for a life out of nothing, death-defying power from a God who abundantly gives us all that we need to become a host of his powerful presence? Would we be filled with that kind of power so that we would not settle for anything less than a wild adventure with him? And for that, we need to be drunk on his love. In Jesus' name, amen.